Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to a Disney at Work podcast. With the whole opening of the Magic Kingdom this week, we thought we might just do a special Disney at Work podcast. And today we're going to go from 20K to Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid, Ariel's Under the Sea Adventure, is a dark ride attraction based on the 1989 Disney animated classic, The Little Mermaid. It sits in Fantasyland Forest in the Magic Kingdom. Guests are able to journey under the sea to experience the adventures of Ariel. But this isn't the first time folks have been going under the sea in this corner of the park. We're here to talk about the evolution of this ride and its roots in another legendary experience, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Make sure as we go through this podcast that you at some point check out our notes page at DisneyAtWork.com. There's lots of uh, graphics and links and other things that we're going to connect you to as part of telling this great story of um, from 20K to Ariel. Um, to understand the roots of what has happened here, one has to go back to an oft-quoted phrase from Walt Disney. Quote, Disneyland will never be completed. It will continue to grow as long as there is imagination left in the world. Where did that phrase come from and what was the situation that caused Walt to make that comment? Well, the quote is actually a response to a critic that happened during the press event in 1955 as Disneyland was reopening. Uh, there were a lot of pieces of Disneyland that really weren't open. In fact, you know, the, the joke was, you know, putting balloons and bunting in front of everything in Tomorrowland because it was a long way from being completed. Walt, in the last uh, days before the park had opened, had actually uh, helped sit there and paint, um, do the painting that needed to be done in the 20K exhibit. There was an exhibit of the set pieces and of the Nautilus and even uh, a look at the uh, at the famed squid. Um, that was part of an opening day attraction at at Disneyland. And um, but there was a lot that hadn't been completed, particularly in that section of the park. And when one critic kind of noted that, Walt made that phrase. Well, in truth, Disneyland will never be completed as long as. Uh, it will continue to grow as long as there is imagination left in the world. Now, in truth, while that statement was made in 1955, Walt really had to walk the talk in a more major way when in 1958, C.V. Wood, who was actually Disneyland's first head of operations, he, he had been hired by Roy, but he had never connected with Walt really and was ultimately fired by Walt. Um, well, after he was fired by Walt, he went on to help open up a place called Pacific Ocean Park in Santa Monica, California, just down the way. Um, Walt Disney, of course, had this exhibit of the Nautilus submarine from the film, but this park included a Nautilus submarine exhibit based on the real submarine, which was a big thing at the time. In fact, it included a 150-foot model of the atomic reactor section. Then, on top of that, the park also offered an attraction called the Deepest Deep, a ride where passengers journeyed on a fake submarine ride with mermaids and other sea life. 
you see that this mermaid thing is really playing out. Of course, mermaids had also come to life in Peter Pan during the mid-50s. And so that too was part of the fancy of all this. Submarines and mermaids, they were destined to be together. And in fact, that was what uh, Walt Disney did. His response to this uh, park being built in Santa Monica, and please understand that, that Disneyland was... I mean, the area around Disneyland in Orange County was beginning to really grow and take off. And, and I for, or, um, had, um, um, uh, I-4, I, I said I-4, that's Orlando. I-5 had connected down to Disneyland, but most of the population was still up in Los Angeles. And this park was in the heart of that in Santa Monica. So Walt had to do really big things in order to really get people to come down to Anaheim to experience his park. And his response was the first major capital addition to Disneyland. It was an expansion in 1959 when the Alweg monorail, the Matterhorn, and the submarine voyage all premiered at the same time. Um, now, I offer another podcast. It's number 44 if you want to listen to it later. And it talks about the advent of this attraction. It was wildly popular among guests who would stand in long lines. They stood in long lines because it was popular and many people wanted to go on it, but it also was a long line because they learned after getting this thing started that getting the people to go down into the hull of the ship and get their seat and then reverse and do the same thing going out, it was not a easy to board um, attraction. And so, uh, it was it was really kind of difficult to get passengers on and off and and then while it looked very cool seeing these submarines you know going through uh, the lagoon you know and in past the waterfall where was it going you know and so forth in truth it was only a few inches under the sea still Imagineers knew they had something they had to have something like this when the Magic Kingdom opened something even better and what could be better then to take the idea of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and marry it to the submarine voyage. Old timers to the Magic Kingdom fondly remember when 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was an attraction originally located in, of course, Fantasyland. Yeah, because you think about you know, knights and kings and queens and castles and what else would you have but uh, a Nautilus ship of steampunk origin? It was really, you know, we talk about whether or not the princess and the frog would work in Frontierland. I, there was nothing more out of place than this 20,000 leagues under the sea attraction, which took a dominant part, sat across from Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which was also Edwardian England and really didn't have anything to do with, with princes and princesses either. But, but hey, it didn't matter. When you saw these Nautilus subs coming out among the rock work and the waterfalls and these pristine blue um, waters, they were pristine because they were chlorinating the heck out of these, this water. In fact, that was the headwater to the Magic Kingdom. They would chlorinate and keep it clean so you could see clearly through the submarines. And then that water would flow from there down those little tiny waterfalls near 
Tomorrowland, uh, past the that tea party at Tomorrowland, and then into, um, and then into the waterways, um, which the swan boats navigated that that circled the castle and the and the central plaza of Magic Kingdom, and then it would flow from there past with Family Treehouse, um, into, into uh, the Jungle River cruise, and then out from there into. Um, I assume the rivers of America. I don't know if those two were connected, but I believe that, yeah, you went from the jungle cruise and I don't know how that would have connected. But anyway, you see the flow of water and it started here at 20,000 leagues under the sea. You couldn't help but just want to take a photo of this. It was really one of the most iconic things in the park when it opened. And like the Disneyland submarines, when the Magic Kingdom first opened, in 1971, they offered the same challenge as as the originals. Um, demand was huge, and it was a fairly slow boarding attraction. Um, there was thought and even design effort put toward adding an additional dock and several subs to the 20,000 um, league attraction. Um, in an interview conducted by Duncan Dixon and Robert Ford of UCF, Bruce Laval shared the following story about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, not long after the Magic Kingdom opened. Quote, there was a proposal that was being considered to expand the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction. They were going to build a second dock and add additional subs. 20,000 Leagues was one of these attractions that had very long wait times. A new dock and sub would cost millions of dollars. There were 60 minute wait times, so it seemed the only way to fix it was to build a second parallel dock that would allow simultaneous loading of two sets of subs. They had already designed the new loading dock. I did an analysis. Um, you understand Bruce uh, Laval was over what was known as guestology, which was the only real, he was kind of a one-man show for understanding data and the flow of guests and where people were going and how to manage queues and all this. That was that was Bruce Laval's job back then. Um, that um, I did analysis, Bruce speaking here, that showed they did not need to make the investment in the new dock. The new Space Mountain attraction was under construction and planned to open the following summer. My analysis showed that a significant portion of the guest demand on 20,000 Leagues would be shifted to Space Mountain, thereby reducing the wait times at 20,000 Leagues. One of the many learnings from Guestology is that overall, quote, attraction demand, end of quote, is constant. People can only be in one place at any given time. People in line at Space Mountain cannot also be in line at 20,000 leagues. The analysis, the analysis actually projected that as a result in the shift in demand, the wait times at 20,000 leagues would be reduced from 60 minutes to 25 to 30 minutes. My recommendation was that at this level of wait times, you could no longer justify the high cost of building the new dock. Bruce Levant goes on to say, when I made this presentation to management, the top executive at Disney at the time said, quote, you're completely wrong. He then told me of an identical situation in Disneyland with Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates had been one of the longest waits in the park. Right across from it, 
they were building the new Haunted Mansion attraction. They had hoped that the new attraction and added capacity would reduce the lines at Pirates. However, he pointed out that after Haunted Mansion opened, not only did the new attraction have an hour wait, but the line at Pirates got even longer. The executive confidently said the same thing would happen at 20,000 leagues. Bruce says, I didn't know he was going to use this example, but fortunately, I had actually researched it. What I had discovered was that when they opened the Haunted Mansion in order to help justify a ticket price increase, they added one e-coupon to the ticket books. On a peak day with 60,000 people in the park, this means that there were now 60,000 additional e-coupons in the park for that day. The problem was that the new Haunted Mansion attraction could only carry 30,000 people a day. So where do you put, where do you think those people holding the remaining 30,000 e-coupons went? They went and stood in line for pirates. The problem was very simple, very clear. They had added twice as much demand e-tickets than they had added in capacity. When I pointed this all out, everyone in the room was stunned. You could see that they thought it made sense, but they didn't know how the top executive would react. He had this puzzled look on his face. I'll never forget it. He said, well, that all sounds good, but that's just not the way it will work. Bruce goes on to say, I then went on to argue that it will be different at Disney World. I pointed out that unlike Disneyland, where they added 60,000 e-coupons to the park each day, no additional e-coupons were going to be added to the ticket books at Disney World. So for every e-ticket that the new Space Mountain attracts, that means there is one less e-ticket that could be used at 20,000 leagues. It's the simple law of supply and demand. When I finished, the same executive said in a somewhat stern voice, well, young man, you sound awful confident, don't you? And that's when I replied, yes, sir, and I will bet my job on it. In an even sterner voice, he then replied, we don't bet jobs here, we only bet money. The room went silent and I could now feel the tension in the room. I then replied, quote, well then, I will bet my salary against your salary. That totally broke up the room. Everyone laughed and the tension was broken. Looking back on this many years later, I realized how lucky I was and how close I was to getting fired. But it did make an impression and everyone remembered the incident, especially since they did not add the dock and the following summer after Space Mountain opened, the wait time went down to exactly what I had predicted the year before. So that's what happened when Space Mountain opened at the Magic Kingdom. The size of the queue went down for a while. When Epcot opened, ticket books went away and the demand to go on 20K went right back up. Because when you walk by this attraction, you're saying, wow, this looks amazing, let's, going, let's go on it. Unlike Space Mountain, where you can't really see what's on it. So unless you've been on the attraction before, you have no idea what's going on on the inside. So what guests didn't understand was that the attraction had a very slow moving queue and one of the longest waits. And by the way, I should mention, now we're getting into a period where you're supposed to be making better accommodation for guests 
with mobility challenges. Again, another challenge there. Then guests were disappointed that the aquarium or the attraction had no throw component and was merely a moving aquarium displaying fake sea life. So it's a kind of a dichotomy here. You don't know what's on Space Mountain. By the way, they changed that at one point by adding kind of a, a rocket ship with some astronauts in a sort of statue form in the, in the front before you went on the attraction. But, but people didn't know what was on that. But after they wrote it, they went, wow, this is so amazing. Meanwhile, people walked by the 20,000 Leagues Lagoon, saw the Nautilus subs, said, this looks amazing, got on it after waiting and waiting and waiting to go on a very slow moving um, queue, only to realize this looks kind of dumb, even when it included mermaids. The end result was higher disappointing guest feedback over the years, not to mention raised eyebrows from guests with disabilities who had a difficult time boarding and disembarking from the attraction. From management's point of view, it was very expensive to staff and operationally keep up. You got to cling in that water, you got to take it down, you got to repaint the thing because the water would, the chlorine in the water would fade out um, everything in the lagoon. It was just a mess. It wasn't worth the cost to operate, even though there was still people waiting in line. Meanwhile, other demands started coming along around the turn, uh, around 18, uh, 1989, most notably with the release of The Little Mermaid. Now guests wanted an opportunity to interact with Ariel, not some little mannequin on a string in a submarine. They wanted the real thing with Ariel. Part of that demand was met at Disney MGM Studios when it created Voyage of the Little Mermaid. Still, parents and kids thought something ought to be available at the Magic Kingdom. A play area and a meet and greet with Ariel was established. While the cost was reasonable compared to building a much larger attraction, it was still not what people really thought should be built. A little mermaid ride. Imagineers have been asked many times, why not build a little mermaid ride? The response usually is that the technology has never been quite right. What they really mean by that is they've been thinking the whole time, how do we take the little mermaid ride and put it into what is the 20,000 leagues submarine lagoon? And that just wasn't working. Um, wasn't doing what they were wanting it to do. Um, meanwhile, in the 90s, as 20,000 league subs were being shelved or put on a long hiatus at the Magic Kingdom, another set of subs was being built for Tokyo Disney Sea. Tokyo Disney Sea isn't just a submarine ride. Oh no. This is a land that is entirely themed around to the stories of Jules Verne. It is, it is Volcania. If you remember in the movie, he goes, the submarine goes toward an island. And as it reaches the island, it goes under the water, comes up underneath in a lagoon in the middle of the island. This is that with a volcano, no less, at one edge. It was an amazingly spectacular looking land. Added to that, they put a 20,000 leagues 
under the sea attraction inside this um, uh, this land. They also put a journey to the center of the earth, which was based on test track technology. That attraction took off as quickly as the ride did. It was wildly popular and has really been probably one of the most popular attractions in the park since opening day. That said, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, that attraction, so it, it, um, it didn't, it didn't go under the water. It didn't even fake being under the water that well. And the queue was still long. Um, what they did is they created smaller ride vehicles, something that would be something of a, of an attachment to the sub. And getting into these small little vehicles, it would go through a suspended journey, kind of like Peter Pan's flight works. It's a hanging suspension vehicle that would go under the sea. Now, the effects, and, and, and your windows have bubbles going up. It really, I'm sorry if I'm destroying this, if you've never been on it. I will tell you, you must go on it when you go visit Tokyo Disney Sea. But know that you're not going underneath the water when you go under 20,000 leagues under the sea. The submarine's still in the lagoon. Beautiful submarine. Um, Disneyland Paris, by the way, it opened a 20,000 league submarine walkthrough. It's stunningly beautiful, but it's never done a ride. And it struggled with doing a Little Mermaid ride. But here, here, here what we have is this 20,000 leagues under the sea attraction under a hanging suspension vehicle. Very, um, uh, very uh, good at giving you the feeling that you're under the water, but you're not under the water. Um, at the same time that Disney built a um, entire themed land based on 20,000 leagues under the sea, it went ahead next door and built a mermaid lagoon in tribute to the Little Mermaid. And on the outside and inside, there are, this is an enormous attraction. If you can imagine entire land focused on Ariel and her friends, and a lot of the rides in there are kind of carnival type um, rides. There's a little um, coaster. There's, um, if you uh, remember at um, Disney's California Adventure, you have uh, that little jumping jellyfish ride that is inside there. They have their own stage version that of um, along the same lines of of what you see um, in terms of Voyage of the Little Mermaid at Disney MGM Studios. But this this show uh, at Tokyo Disney Sea is stunningly. It is more like a Cirque du Soleil show than it is like a little puppet show. It is beyond what they've done. So they have kind of evolved both of these attractions. And yet, what happened in the meantime back at the Magic Kingdom? Well, when 20,000 Leagues was just too costly to maintain, um, they, and not really seeing a solution nor anybody putting out a budget uh, to do anything, they finally filled in the hole that was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
and in its place they created a playground tied to the Winnie the Pooh attraction across the way. That little play area was affordable, but the demand was simply not there. It, it, it was probably one of the saddest moments in the life of the Magic Kingdom. Because while the playground was quaint, it was still, it wasn't 20,000 leagues under the sea. And even though that ride had problems, at least it was a ride. And now you had this little play area. It was, it was pathetic. Well, here's the good news. A solution finally came to mind and so did a budget. It was determined that there was a need to do a massive expansion of Fantasyland, what would be known as the Fantasyland Forest. And in doing so, they decided that they would create a dark ride based on the Little Mermaid. As, um, and uh, they had been playing with this idea of doing a dark ride in Disneyland Paris on the Little Mermaid, um, just as they had done some kind of attraction for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea there. Um, but cost overruns in Paris ever kept them from really ever making that happen. And, uh, um, but they kept playing with the idea. And finally, they just simply came back to the very simplest of ideas. And that is to use an Omnimover vehicle. That Omnimover vehicle allows you to carry thousands of guests Per hour um, through the attraction and makes it easy for you to really handle the demand that is the Magic Kingdom for because for after all it is the most in-demand um, park in the entire world uh, there are more people who visit Magic Kingdom than any other uh, any other theme park in Disney or outside of Disney it, and, and, it, and far beyond the numbers that any other park does. And so, and so finally, they determined that they would make an Omnimover version of The Little Mermaid. And when you go to um, Disney California Adventure, you'll see that they did the very same. In fact, they built it there first um, around uh, their lagoon before they moved it on to um, Magic Kingdom. That allowed them to lower some of the costs of creating it by doing it for two different parks. And, uh, and it's a beautiful ride and guests love it and they line up. And at Magic Kingdom, they have done a remarkable job on the queue, which allows you to go past Prince Eric's castle, go into a grotto, uh, which by the way, I have a picture on post a picture on my post showing uh, a reference to the 20,000 League Under the Sea um, Nautilus. Um, but you go into this grotto, you go past these interactive elements of these little sea crabs moving um, objects around. You go uh, past Scuttle, who is doing a little bit of play, and then you finally go into the boarding area of the attraction. You board the attraction. It's a wonderful, uh, enjoyable attraction. Maybe someday there'll be something even more under the sea. Will it be for the Little Mermaid? Will it be for 20,000 Leagues? Who can tell? But I think there's some really important messages, what we call souvenirs for your organization. Consider the following. How do you balance the quality and the quantity of your products and services? Um, 
especially when you look into the issues of cost. Now, a quantity, we measure that at Disney in terms of the number of people you can get through a particular attraction. How do you, how do you maintain all those things? You've got the financial issue, you've got the quality issue, you've got to get people through it. This is, this is kind of the triangle that, um, uh, the Bermuda Triangle, I should say, since we're talking about all things uh, aquatic. Um, this is the Bermuda Triangle of quality and quantity and cost. How do you get people through? How do you, how do you balance out those things? Uh, how do you measure the demand for the products and services that you offer? How do you reimagine your products and services to better meet that demand while respecting costs? How do you continue to plus and add on to things over the years? Obviously, what is expected today in a theme park experience is very different than what was expected years ago. And so you have to continue building on. That's why when you go to Disneyland, you have the Finding Nemo subs, which has done a really great job of taking the old subs and taking it to another element, adding that story of Nemo and, and putting in some very clever things using uh, some projection activity as well as some really great um, animatronic style characters under the water. So much to, to be considered. I love um, all these attractions at Magic Kingdom. I enjoyed the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, miss seeing that. Love the Little Mermaid attraction at Magic Kingdom. I really love what they have done at Tokyo Disney Sea. And when you think about the possibility of another park, think about taking elements like these and building them out to a full scale level. That, that is something that takes your imagination to the next level. And I look forward to the day where we see things of that nature as well. Well, this has been another Disney at Work podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you subscribe to our podcast and, uh, and check out um, what we have to offer on our, our posts. At DisneyAtWork.com, we share books that tell stories like this. Uh, books like The Wonderful World of Customer Service at Disney and Disney Leadership and You. Just insights from nearly 100, year, 100 leaders who have defined the Walt Disney Company um, over the decades. From Walt Disney to Imagineers to animators and performers. What are the leadership lessons? This is what I love to share most. Love to talk about all things that we love about our fandom of Disney. But when you really get to the stories that inspire, that make you think differently about your own life and your own work and your own business, that's really when it gets exciting. And I hope you'll join us for these podcasts and so much more, especially as the Magic Kingdom reopens. Join us here at Disney at Work and Play. Again, thank you. And in the words of Sinbad's storybook voyage, always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. Thank you.